Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. You think you need a lawyer? You probably do. Hey, Cops and Riders. Thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Riders podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I will be your host for today's show. My first order of business is to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Francis Sheldrick, Kathleen Donnelly, Fran Cross, Gary Edgington, J.K. Doan, and Kathleen Kovacic. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers, all one word. I would also like to thank all of you who have purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. Today is episode one of a special two-part interview with retired police sergeant John Ferriso of the New York Police Department. John Ferriso was a member of the NYPD from 1993 to 2013 with 20 years of experience as patrol officer, September 11 rescue and recovery and patrol supervisor, sergeant in charge of both the Internal Affairs Bureau and the Missing Persons Squad. John supervised and investigated over 7,000 cases per year while assigned to the Missing Persons Squad. John has his own private investigation company specializing in missing person cases. John volunteers his investigative experience to nationwide nonprofit organizations conducting missing person investigations. He helps other investigators with their missing person investigations and looks at new aspects of cold cases while assisting family members in finding answers. A A short story in a New York minute, an officer's eyewitness account of the events of 2011-2001 was published online. In today's episode, we discuss why he why he was interested in law enforcement, why he chose the New York Police Department to work, what he was doing and what his job was after the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, how he dealt with the rumors and aftermath of the terrorist attack, how the city came together during this time of tragedy and their attitude towards the police, lessons learned from 9-11, his time as a sergeant in the Internal Affairs Unit, Common Misconceptions and Attitudes Towards Members of Internal Affairs. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. John Fariso, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start the show like I try to start most of these shows with coppers who are either active or retired. How did it all begin? What kind of sparked your interest in law enforcement? Ironically, it uh, at a very early age, I remember as early as kindergarten, talking about it. And I actually wrote it like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I drew a little police car and (laughs) helped me uh, sketch out the words. I think that came from I had an uncle who was a cop and I was very amazed at what he was doing and what he didn't talk about. I knew he was involved in police work. And there was a lot of cops in my neighborhood in Queens, New York. It seems like it's just like a factory. They pump out firemen and cops. (laughs) And 
It seems like the firemen all hang out together when they're little. They all become firemen. The cops all hang out and they become cops. It's strange. <laughs> and I guess like the stickball team, you have the cops. They all become cops on one, off one team and the other team of stickball becomes firemen. So it, uh, in like 1979, like in the 70s, I was, you know, seven years old and I was watching the news a lot. And, you know, parents of the 70s, anyone who's out there and here's this that grew up in that generation they just put you in front of the television it didn't ask what you were watching so it's late at night i'm watching the son of sam investigation <laughs> ironically the son of sam had committed three murders walking distance from my house wow okay so there was women dying their hair there was no not many cars out at night and that was on the nightly news and back then the news didn't hold back they told you the truth they showed you the shot bodies in the cars and it was, uh, they didn't use the word serial killer, but it was obvious something serious was going on. And this was happening in my neighborhood. And, and I remember when they caught him and I remember people talking about it. And I was like, at that time I was 77, I was seven years old. And I, I was fascinated that detectives caught this maniac right. and how they did it done in the car and the note. And then at the, around, around the same time, I would, you know, on my block, we'd sit in front, I'd watch the police cars drive by. And I always look at them and I'd say to myself, what are they doing in that car? You know, they're going somewhere. They're doing something. I wanted to go with them. I wanted to get there and catch those bad guys. Absolutely. And then, yeah, I started watching um, cop shows at a young age. You know, Barney Miller was a, was a show big on television. So, and like I said, a lot of my friends' parents were cops. The guys in my neighborhood were cops. And then. Around 1979, another big case happened in, in New York. It wasn't in Queens. It was in Manhattan. And it was the Eton Pates case. I don't know if you're familiar no, with I'm that. Not. Okay. If, if you or anyone else, you need to Google it because it was a very big case in the late 70s. He was the first kid on the milk con. Oh, okay. Now, he got abducted in Manhattan. Okay. And the news was fun. Back then, they were sensationalizing. Oh, he, he was abducted by a pedophile ring. He was sold into this child slavery. It was very creepy. Yeah. I remember watching that. And once again, my parents never said, hey, what is little Johnny watching on the television there? So, <laughs> and, you know, it's the summer of 79. I'm playing stickball with my friends and we're out in the street playing games. And I remembered watching on the news and I started to get afraid of leaving the house because the news was making it so scary to watch. Sure. So that summer went by. And then, you know, I remember locking the doors and all that. I said, you know, it was odd, you know, and then I eventually forgot about it. But. I'm going to fast forward here through everything. And years later in the missing person squad, I worked on that case. Oh, wow. Isn't that something? And not only did I work on that case. I mean, if you want to ask about it in the missing person yeah. squad, you could. Not only did I work on that case. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because it fits in what I just said. I was in the office with one detective. And a lot of detectives were out digging a basement up where a pedophile had lived once. So they were digging his basement was me and one detective in the office and a civilian was there. And the civilian comes running out of the office and says, someone needs to pick up the phone. He knows where the kid is. So I'm thinking it was a kid from another cold case I had because right. I was doing cold case. On. Detective picks up the phone and he's looking at me and I see him write down Eton Pates and I see him, hear him talking. He talks, talks, write down those information. He hangs up the phone. He goes, this guy's telling us who killed Eton Pates. So all those years later, it came full circle with that case. Wow, isn't that ever crazy? So you grew up in Queens. You have an interest in law enforcement. Did you go to college right away? 
yes, went to college. I knew I was going to get into law enforcement. So, I mean, I wasn't that much into criminal justice, so I didn't take the criminal justice major. Mm -hmm. But uh, I went to college and, you know, I I guess I was biding my time. Some people go to the military to bide their time for law enforcement. I went to college and I figured I, you know, I I wasn't a good student in school. So I figured I I really got to get my uh, (laughs) my intellect going here because high school (laughs) I didn't really do you as and much me as I both, wanted. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, some of my friends were becoming cops already. There was five of us on the block that used to hang out. Three of us became cops out of the five, wow. out of the, you know. So I took the exam and I was waiting to get called and college just, I was just going through it. And then the NYPD called me in uh, 1993. Okay. Now, what did your parents think about that? You become a cop. I also, yeah, I also had a cousin who was a cop who was a highway cop. Besides my uncle, okay. my uncle had retired. My cousin was a highway cop. My dad was very supportive. He was he had been in the military. My dad, so he was uh, very supportive. Um, you know, I'm going to make a little joke. I think sometimes he just wanted me to have a good job, and he didn't have to pay for me growing <laughs> up, and you know, didn't want me bummed. <laughs> so, dad was. I'll never forget, like. I got a letter in the mail and I go, dad, did police exam, they called me and I was only 20. I'm like, there's no way they're going to hire me now. My dad's like, all right, um, we're getting you a suit because you're going on some. <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough, my mother was, my mother had been a liberal and, uh, she was, she wasn't a fan of the police department. Okay. So she was a liberal. So she had a liberal idea of things and she would just look at me and nod ahead. Are you sure that's what you want to do? I said, this is what I want to do. And, uh, I used to hear her telling her friends, this is what he's going to do. And uh, she didn't try to stop it, but she wasn't as, I guess, as a mother being nervous. Right, right. Wasn't for it. But like I said, I had my cousin who was a highway cop, and he told me, listen, the NYPD is far from perfect, but it's a good job. Okay. Now, as far as NYPD goes, was it NYPD or nothing? Or, I mean, was that your first choice? You know, you had other people on your show talking about this, and it's the city of New York is huge. And it's got a lot of people, but we have smaller jurisdictions around it that pay very well. Yeah. Uh, Long Island, Nassau, Suffolk County. If anyone's unfamiliar with that, Nassau and Suffolk County is affluent air. I wouldn't say affluent, but there's some high paying police. I think Suffolk County at one point was the highest paid in the country. Wow. Okay. So you have Westchester. So, you know, you have the fire department. So most people try all of them, which is what I did. But you, you pretty much know that unless you score very, very well, I'm talking like the very top you don't get onto those jobs and you have to be a resident of some of them. So it's harder. You know, you're not a resident in Nassau, Suffolk County. I'm not exactly sure how that works. So I knew I was going to the NYPD. Let's put it that way, but I did try other jobs, but the NYPD was, I think that I was just meant to do the NYPD and I probably would have just went there regardless. Okay. Sounds good. So you go through the Academy. This is a 93. What was your first yeah. job out of the Academy? Where'd they send you? I went to a precinct Queens. Uh, I went very close to where I live. Uh, pretty, you know, door to door. It was pretty close. It was not as much as a definitely still middle class, but it was more congested. There was a high line train. There was projects. There was, even though it was pretty close to me, it was the other side of the boulevard. Let's put it that way. Okay, Gotcha. <laughs> and I wouldn't say it was a high crime area, but you wouldn't walk there late at night. Okay. So even as kids, we stayed away from that area. So, but I knew the area, so it wasn't foreign to me. Like some guys get thrown into a war zone. It wasn't a war zone. We called them A, B, and C houses. I guess it was a B house. A was the most busiest. Okay. Now, 
when you're a new rookie like that, after you're done with your field training, where do they put where where did they put you? Were you in a radio car? Were you on foot? I mean, like what what was your assignment? Well, there was, you know, the police, the NYPD, as most people know, it's a huge department. Right. So at the time, there was, this doesn't happen anymore. I think there was 30 of us that went to the precinct from the academy, just went to that one precinct. Okay. And so there's 30 of us there. So they split us up into three groups. They gave us a field training so- sergeant. And this guy was old school. He had worked in the Bronx. He was, uh, he, he was very good at what he did. He very knowledgeable and he was very good at training us. So what they'll do is they'll take a van and they'll say, okay, I have 10 recruits. So, all right, two guys got to go to the hospital today. We need one guy on the switchboard. One guy has to guard a sick prisoner in the precinct. The rest is let's go in the van and see what happens. And we would just, you know, we would drive around and just answer 911 calls. And okay. this sergeant had the philosophy of let's, when the calls come in, and this is how you start learning. Yeah. So a sergeant was actually doing that. That's interesting because like where I worked in other parts of the country too, there's a field training officer that you're more or less one-on-one with. And no. You know, with you, that's totally different. I mean, I was a field training sergeant where I supervised the field training officers and the recruits, but they weren't hopping in my car and, you know, like buddying around all night long. It was, okay, I'm checking your paperwork or I go to an assignment that you're at to make sure that, you know, everything's copacetic. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by the thrilling audiobook Avenging Adam, book one in the FBI canine thriller series written by author Jody Burnett. Sparks fly between hotshot FBI agent Rick Sanchez and no-nonsense FBI canine handler Kendra Dean as they chase a ruthless serial killer. Witness an electrifying blend of suspense, romance, and redemption, where internal conflicts challenge our heroes as much as their target does. Will they catch the killer before it's too late? Grab Avenging Adam now. It's more than a story. It's an experience. Get 50% off the Avenging Adam audiobook at jody-burnett.com forward slash cops and writers. Now, they, they, not only are you being trained at how the NYPD, they also use you for stuff that the guys with time on don't want to do. And the job needs you at different places. You might go to a detail in Manhattan with your field training sergeant. They'll say, listen, there's a parade. You're going to learn. Go stand on the parade. <laughs> if there's issue where... You know, you have disorderly group at this time of day. Okay, let's go hang out on the corner there for two hours. Uh, and then if there's a disorderly group, I'll put foot posts out there. It's just the luck of the draw for that day, what you do. But as the weeks went by, our field training was like maybe three months. As the weeks went by, we started to fill sector cars. Okay. Technically, we were in training, but those guys did absolutely zero of training to us. I mean, I had a guy, I got in the car with him one day and he looks at me and he goes, I'm not teaching you anything. He goes... I'm going to teach you something. You're going to do something stupid and they're going to come after me. <laughs> he goes. <laughs> so I'm like. Oh. And as he's talking to me, he's driving on Roosevelt Avenue and he's not paying attention to traffic and he's swerving with the police car into traffic. And I'm looking at him and he, he takes out. We used to have a memo book that you write on. Oh, yeah. He takes it out and he goes, watch this. He goes, he goes, if I write this down, they'll use this against me and fire me. He goes, so why would I teach you what to do? He goes, so just sit there and answer the radio. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny you know when i when i was on field training and then after with a senior officer you know in a squad car they wouldn't even let me touch the radio they're like kid you stay on that side of the car and you keep your hands to yourself unless you know it's world war three and something you know crazy is going on i can't answer the radio or operate the siren or or the lights he said you don't do any of that 
you just keep your you know keep your hands to yourself over there it's the personality of the guy you're yeah. working with the, oh, the yeah. cuz they are technically trained to train i guess you'd call it so they were like listen you got to learn to talk on the radio like everybody talks we're new yorkers we know how to talk but to talk on a police radio is it takes a little time it does. you know and never talking to police radio you're never gonna learn it so some guys are like get on the radio and start talking and i did and the guy was like correct me once or twice and then you learn it other guys like you said you're not talking on the radio don't do the lights just stand there you're a body yep. like, okay <laughs> <laughs> oh great <laughs> all right well let's fast forward in your career to 9-11 now what were you doing that day as far as what was your assignment? And I'm sure you were at work or I, I do believe you were at work that day. And what was your assignment? Where were you geographically compared to where everything happened? Yeah, I'll just, I'm just going to make a little sense of the old situation. What happened was I got transferred from patrol because I was on the sergeant's list. Okay. So the NYPD was getting sued. Long story. They needed people to do data entry to get uh, police reports put into the computer. So I got thrown into the mix and I didn't want to go. And I got there and there was one police plaza and I'm like, well, I'm getting promoted anyway. So I got there and then it was a really good assignment. Great bunch of guys. So I was a half a mile from the, the twin towers. I still call it the twin towers as a New Yorker. I was a half mile from the twin towers. We saw it. It was right outside that building. The shadow of the building reached pretty close to where we were. I drove past it every morning, not drove, but I was on express bus and we, we went past it every morning on the bus. So the shadows of that building, not only <laughs> was a shadow, it just loomed over us because it, 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 one police plaza was small compared to it right. and being a half way, there's no way around it. So I, every morning would go to that job at one police plaza and I, I forgot, I believe it was on the sixth or seventh floor and uh, my window faced it. Not my window, but the window of the main uh, lobby in the office because we had one floor lot faced it. Now, what alerted you to it? Were you were doing data entry or whatever? Did you hear just a loud bang, or do you remember? Oh yeah, yeah. Now, another thing is, I remember that day like it was yesterday, and I could I could tell you every detail like it just happened because I think about nine eleven every day. Sure. There was not a day since that day that I haven't thought about it in one way or the other, and not in a bad way. I think about it because of, of everything I saw and witnessed. And it just think, I just seem to think about it every day. And I think others do, but not everybody talks about that. And there was a time I didn't talk about it, but I'm fine with talking about it. So I went into the office and I remembered that I sat there and there was a problem with some data entry issue that was so minuscule now. And the guy's like, make sure you do this. My, my lieutenant's like, make sure you do this and make sure you do that. And I'm like, all right. So I sat at my desk and I had a Walkman back then. So. I, I was doing the data entry. I was actually so good at it. I could listen to a Walkman at the same time. So I was listening to the Howard Stern show. And then as I'm listening, a commercial comes on. So I put my Walkman down. And I remember that guy, that lieutenant kept asking me about the data entry. I'm going to have to talk to him. I'm like, eh, let me finish this report and I'll talk to him. So I'm typing and we heard this boom sounds that sounded like, sounded like a giant rock got dropped into something hollow. Like a, it was like an echo boom. Yeah. So. I thought a piece of construction equipment fell off the roof because that was my first thought. I go, wow, something fell off the roof. So uh, just as that happened, one of the sergeants yelled, you, you got to see this. And I was like, that's odd. You know, for working in, in the city, we don't hear that. Because that right. <laughs> everything else is forgotten about. Yep. I looked out the window and I saw one of the towers with a hole in it. 
And, you know, I wrote about this because I witnessed papers flying out like confetti, which I thought was strange because papers are flying out. I was like, something's not right. I was like, why is there a hole in the building? I said, that's that's a bomb. I said, they blew up the building. I said, because it happened in 1992 and New Yorkers were aware of that, that they put a bomb in the building. So I'm like, they did it. I don't know who, but somebody did it. So I saw the papers flying out and I watched the helicopter fly immediately there and the smoke was so black and it would go straight up into the sky and the papers would, would go in a different direction with the wind. And then I looked at it and I said, something's not right. And, you know, I got to tell my wife because she was working in Midtown at that time, more north. So back then I didn't even have a cell phone yet. Right. So I walked down to the lobby to go to a payphone, ironically. <laughs> okay. You're trying to get a hold of your wife. Did you get a hold of her? Yes. Yeah, so this is a funny story. I put the quarter in the phone and she goes, she's talking to me and we didn't have kids yet. And I said, told my wife, I said, uh, I said, Anna, I said, um, you know, a bomb just went off in the Empire State Building, Twin Towers. She goes, what? So she goes, yeah. So she puts on the news and then she's watching the news. I said, listen, I can't stay on the payphone. Everybody's upstairs. They're going to, I'm assuming they're going to send us to the towers. I didn't say they were. I said, I'm assuming they're going to send us to the towers. I said, let me go back upstairs. I'll call you back in a little bit. I'll tell you where I am. Hung up the phone. I went upstairs. So as I was upstairs, I was watching the tower and I kept watching everything that was going on with the thick black smoke. And then I see a, a like something coming, coming across the sky. I, I was like, what is that? And before I could even see it, I saw the, trail of the plane i guess yeah. you know like the trail of the mist and i saw it strike the rear of the other tower wow and not only did it strike it it shot out the front of it at the same time i was like it, i thought i was watching a movie i said this is insane i says so we got to get out of here we got to get out of lower manhattan i said this isn't normal anymore so everybody was looking around they were civilians they were crying and then we heard a rumble because it took about three seconds for it to hit the rumble hit our building okay. and it rumbled and that building shook. So we all started running out of the building. And uh, I left everything on my desk. And I went to the hallway and there was two detectives who were running. One had high heels on and another lady. And man, I went down those stairs. I don't remember touching them. <laughs> and I went, I went outside and I saw people running. And I saw an NYPD recruit just sitting on the floor. And I said, you got to get off the floor. She's like, look. I said, I know it's getting up. So I got her up. and then. I looked at the tower and then I, I saw a guy I worked with and he's like, where are we going? I said, I said something else is going to happen. We got to get out of here. So we, uh, we went up to Chinatown, which was only a few blocks, but, and, uh, it was because even then I was wondering if this building falls, it could land on us here. Right. So we started walking towards Chinatown and we walked with this giant crowd towards Chinatown. Wow. So it's obviously chaotic. You're not really sure of what's what. What were some of the rumors that you were hearing? Because in a situation like that, it's going to be hard to get facts right away. So, I mean, I remember, you know, I read your article, you know, you're talking about like, you know, maybe the Sears tower was attacked, you know, what was the mood? I mean, what was, what were some of the, what was some of the stuff you were initially hearing? The initial hearing was um, I, the Seer, somebody said the Sears Tower was hit and it fell down. Wow. I talked to people in Chicago who actually told me that was a rumor that went as far as there. Because I, I asked them, I said, did you ever hear that? So that rumor went. Um, I heard 
uh, Camp David was attacked. I heard that some people named certain nations that were behind it. How they would know that right away, I don't know. It was people cheering in streets in certain neighborhoods. I heard that there was a van with a bomb driving around. So I'm listening to all these rumors and I'm like, you know, I don't believe any of these rumors, but something is going on. Right. And, you know, at, at one point when the tower, the first tower fell, I was still in Chinatown and the guy I was with when it fell, we started running because we saw the, the debris flying up the street. Oh, yeah. And and I, I dove into next to a tire of a car and there was a woman there, an elderly woman, and she had such fear in her face. And I was looking right at her and I wasn't in a police uniform. I was just dressed like a civilian. So some guy walks by with a briefcase and he says, he says to me, he goes, get off the floor. It's just the subway. <laughs> and then as he says that, the, the debris started flying up the block. <laughs> and this guy took briefcase faster than everybody. Wow. Now, as far as the police response, what was your duty that day? And when did it end for you? Well, it, it was kind of, I wouldn't say a free for all, but there was no rules. There was nothing going on because, you know, it was like, Everything just got dumped on your lap. And so I was the only one at one point walking in the direction of lower Manhattan. Everybody was heading uptown. Okay. So I just figured I where I went and find the guys I work with and I'll figure it out. So as I'm walking, I heard the fire trucks. I saw the PD vehicles. I, I didn't see at one point, I think I was the only one with, with crowds of hundreds and hundreds of people. It got so bad that they were looking at me and let me walk through it. And why is this guy walking in that direction? Cause I wasn't in uniform. Yeah. And uh, some U.S. Marshals stopped me because they I was near the courthouse. And these guys were heavily armed, so sure. they 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 were guys got these guys got dressed quick. And I showed them my ID, and I said I'm going back to one police plaza. So they let me down some side street. So I went down the side street, and I I saw another police recruit, not the one that was sitting on the floor, a guy just standing there, and he he was right at academy. He, I don't know where his guys went, but me and him were just looking at each other and. He handed me a spackle mask, you know, like ironically, the spackle mask they wore during COVID. And he says, put this on because the smoke was in the air. Yeah. And as he handed me the mask, I see the other tower lean over. Oh, wow. And then lean to itself and fall straight down into it. Dang. It imploded itself, the second tower. Then the smoke went up. Now, when I say smoke, this isn't a campfire smoke. Right. This is like construction debris smoke. You couldn't. It was a wall like a curtain. And it was rumbling sound. It had a rumble sound that was heading in my direction. Yeah. So I looked at this recruit and he looked at me and we took off running and I could hear it behind me coming up from lower Manhattan. Cause I, at, I was back to a half mile away from the building when it, the second one fell. Cause I had walked back to where I originally right. was. I heard it coming and, and, um, I, I turned around once or twice and I just kept running, running, running. And then I didn't see it. The debris hit me, but I saw it debris as in the smoke but i saw it going into the side streets behind me because the wind was taking it ironically towards brooklyn if anyone's ever been to manhattan low manhattan brooklyn is on the other side so it was not going debris the smoke was not going uptown it was going towards brooklyn so i ran a little further and i saw a bunch of guys that i worked with and we just stood around and waited for a supervisor to tell us what to do yeah and they, they they did come out and they started to give us some some you know, rules and things to do, but we were pretty much left. We were an outpost left on our own at that point. Okay. So what was your job until you went home that night? Like what did you wind up doing? Directing traffic. We were letting, I let the vehicles in and the ambulances out. I did that for (laughs) my gosh, from nine in the morning till about 11 at night. Wow. 
I mean, that's incident command on steroids. You know, New York, you know, that wasn't the first, you know, terror incident in New York. But, you know, obviously this is a, a completely different league of, you know, compared to everything else that's ever happened. You know, it's an act of war. And oh yeah. You know, it, it starts at the top and you know, we're supposed to be prepared for that, but I don't know how you can prepare for something of that magnitude. You know, it just it's mind boggling. <sighs> Many times it was like I was watching a movie, like a, a disaster movie. And I knew it wasn't a movie, obviously, but when I watched it, I said, I can't pause this. I can't stop this. I have nothing to do but just sit here and direct this traffic. And then remember I said before I called my wife on the cell phone. Yeah. I mean, that's pay phone. Right. We have gone hours now. I, I forgot to call her back. Oh, boy. So I'm calling everybody. Now it gets even better. The the phones were down in lower Manhattan. Mm. That makes sense. I didn't. People ask me this that read my story. How did you finally get in touch with her? It took hours before I finally talked to like a third person who got the message okay. back to her because he didn't have a cell phone. Wow. So these young people don't know, man. Without a cell phone, it, things are different. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I do remember those days. Yes. So, you know, I'm thinking about the aftermath after everything is done and over with, you know, the, at first though, it's organized chaos. You know, I'm just going to touch on that real quick. It looks like it's complete oh, yes. chaos, but there is some organization to it. And again, that's why we preach incident command. And if you have good bosses, you can make it through pretty much anything. You know, if you just stick to the basics, etc. Now this happens. And I was thinking to myself, you know, just, the magnitude of all of this, did you go through like the stages of grief or death? You know, there's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. Did you personally go through that, do you think? Definitely not in that order and definitely not to that extreme. But it's I did get in touch with my wife and, you know, she always said that, uh, you know, I knew you'd call me back. So, you know, she was concerned, obviously, but I guess everybody was just so busy. And then I didn't get home for like, I got home late, late that night, and then I was back at work a couple hours later. So I didn't have time to really like put much thought into it. Like when I went home that night, I mean, I had to take a shower to get my, throw my clothes out right. and take a shower to get that. And, you know, it wasn't on me, like it caked on me, but it, it was in the air enough when we knew that that stuff was not healthy. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. I, I live in a quiet neighborhood, man. I'm only a couple, six miles from Manhattan, but I kept hearing sirens. And I kept hearing police sirens, police sirens in both of my ears. And I was looking out my window and I said, there's no sirens. I'm, I've been hearing them for 14 hours right next to me because the ambulances kept passing. Right. I was still hearing the sirens. Wow. And I kept thinking about things I witnessed that day. And I said, I, I got to get to sleep. So I kept thinking, I was witnessing this stuff. So I went to bed and I started the next morning all over again. A, a, guy, a guy I worked with picked me up and we went back to Low Manhattan and there was cops on, you know, down the boulevard at the bridges all over the place. So we would show our ID that let us through. We were the only ones driving in that direction again. And, you know, I drove into Manhattan and I saw the national guard in the street. I said, this is this. I'd never expected to see this in my life as a New Yorker. I know my country was attacked. I know my city was attacked, but I never expected to see the national guard. It was wild. Wow. And, you know, we would show the national guard guys our ID and say, all right, we're going back to one police plaza. But still, we had no real direction. We went back to one police plaza and we, we started 
directing traffic again. And I, when I would come home the next few days, my family would ask me about it. And some would either ask me or not want to ask. Sure. And I didn't talk about it for a couple of days. I didn't talk about it. And it, it wasn't until a chance encounter where somebody kept asking me and I finally just told them about the whole day. And then right then and there, I said, I'm going to write about it because if I witnessed that um, and I'm willing to talk about it, people need to know the fine details of things I witnessed that I saw that day because, you know, we don't want people to ever forget. People say never forget, never forget, but it's quick if you don't hear it to forget about something. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Do you think it was easier or tougher to go through this because so many people went through, I mean, everybody's situation is unique, but pretty much, you know, you all went through the same incident per se. Now, do you think it was easier on everybody or a little bit tougher because did you band together or what did that look like? It was the best time to work for the NYPD after 9-11. Okay. Because, you know, the community thought we were great. There was no anti-police sentiment at that time. The crime actually went down. There was a joke that even the homicides went down. We, the murderers were like, maybe this isn't a good, a good time. You know, it's cop humor <laughs> going in there. Sure. You know, and, you know, you would get on the subway. It was tense, but people would thank you and say, you know, thank you for going to work. Thank you for doing this. And, you know, the outpouring from throughout the country and throughout the world was the letters that we would get sent to one police plaza that I would read. and. There was like professional chefs showing up from New Orleans and other parts of the country. Just they came to volunteer and, oh, you're a chef. Well, OK, can you cook for the rescue workers? Yeah. You know, cops are. They're not. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're free food. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, cop, ironically, um, I could tell you this and, you know, I mean, anybody, cop, cop, even never goes away, never goes away. So the cop humor continued even during the grieving time. And it was grieving. And, you know. I remembered the bodies getting taken out of the pit and I saw them covered the cops find in. And I remembered people saying that, you know, their ex-partner just got taken out of the pit. And, but, you know, we did, I was assigned to the family center and they was, they were giving DNA. Family members were bringing DNA to the family center. Yeah. And that was my assignment. It was, I was able to do it. I mean, I'm sure most cops were, I'm definitely sure that some people didn't handle it well, but, uh, it was easier for me to be busy and to work along with it and do my part. Yeah. Now, how did you, or did it affect your relationship with your wife, family, friends? I mean, how did, what did that look like? If you don't mind me asking. No, not at all. Uh, the only effect was I was never home. Right. <laughs> uh, the only effect was I ne was never home. My wife would talk to me about it. My wife had, had a little incident with 9-11-2 because she had a run from midtown manhattan and she had a run across the uh the bridges because you know <laughs> that day of 9-11 let me tell you if one person started running a thousand people followed. okay so her and her friend and her sister ran across a bridge to get from manhattan to queens so you know she experienced some of that so she knew what i was talking about and uh it, it didn't affect me negatively no it has not okay now you know, thinking about PTSD, that term gets thrown around a lot. And I think it's been whitewashed through time, you know, and it affects the people differently. But what really struck me was, you know, I read your article and you're talking about laying in bed and everything just kept on coming back to you. You know, it's like a loop, you know, it's like watching a movie over and over. And 
I've gone through that. And I mean, obviously not to the same extent that you have, but that really struck me. And I'm like, boy, this guy's spot on. Cause that's one of the things that it just, like you said, it doesn't go away. Some things that it just keeps on playing over and over in your head and with time, hopefully, and maybe some help, it gets better. I mean, is it getting better for you? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, going back to what I said earlier, I didn't talk about it for a few days. Yeah. And then I, they they set, up, they set up eventually a family, not a family center, a viewing platform. And if anyone's been there, they'll know what I'm talking about. There was a viewing platform. A lot of cops were angry about it because you had tourists viewing the site. But I guess like goes back to when I said, never forget, you know, if you want to come view it, if it's done professionally, which it was. So people kept asking me questions and they were asking the cops the questions and nine out of 10 cops would say, I was working Staten Island that day. Sorry, I was off. And then I would say, well, I was here and I would, they would say, where were you? And I would point to the corner and they couldn't believe what I was telling them. So I was willing to talk about it. And I I got a lot of, uh, a lot of people generally interested. And I said, I'm not going to hold back and, you know, not talk about something because it stopped bothering me after that. And, you know, some people, I watched civilians on the street that day that just shut down. They, they just, they just couldn't function. And I watched other people pick them up and basically run with them. I saw a couple, I wrote about this in my article, the the line of people that were sitting on the floor that couldn't breathe. And they were saying they would, you know, I I don't want to say what it was, but I was breathing fine. And, you know, EMS was helping them. So not everybody handles a tragic situation. Some people, I guess, will just wait for someone else to to guide them along. Sure. And some people will take the bull by the horns and help. And some people will do different things. So everybody, I guess, handled that differently well, at that moment. Cops are helpers. You know, it, it sounds corny, but, you know, when you ask a cop most of the time, why did you become a cop? Well, I want to help people. And oh, sure. I'm a huge believer of that. You know, that doesn't go away. And that's the type of person you want in that job. So that makes total sense to me. Now, when, you know, things were grim and this is going bad, obviously, you know, you're looking for signs of hope. And in your um, article, you had a couple of things in there. One thing that struck me was the American flags. Oh, yeah. You know, could you kind oh, yeah. of go into that a little bit? I saw them the next morning all over the place. It felt like it was a July 4th parade. And... I put the flag out that night. I went home and I put the flag right outside. And I was like, you know, it was, uh, our country was at war at that moment. It was obvious. So I put the flag out and I went to work and I saw flags all over the city hanging. And that's not something is very common in Manhattan, as you would think if it's not a parade. So, and there was a lot of patriotism and it was genuine at that moment. It was very genuine. It was, it was, it was a, you felt proud to be an American at that time, despite the fact we, you know, and one more thing that struck out of me, I I don't know where you were, what point in all of this, but you saw like fighter jets going over New York City. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I remember, and as the jets were going over, I was like, you know, I was eating breakfast at my table t- less than two hours ago. I mean, I, I it was like bizarro <laughs> world because, you know, when those jets went over the city, I had just finally ran back to one police plaza and the second tower collapsed and I heard a military jet and I, I was like, is another plane going to hit something? Yeah. And I'm judging. I actually, at that moment, was judging the other buildings that which one would fall in this direction and land where we were. That's that's crazy. Yeah. And you start to think, like, this is dangerous here. <laughs> People are not going to come home from this. Day. Right. And it was 
it wasn't obviously another plane. It was a military jet. And there was people cheering in the street for it, which was bizarre. Yeah. You just you don't expect to see that, right? No, my my morning started out whereas I was ready to talk to my supervisor about a report. God, <laughs> and now I'm cheering over Manhattan. Right now, kind of spawned or grown from nine eleven. You hear the conspiracy theories. You know those started popping up. You know there was you know we bombed our own. You know the sure. the towers. There was no planes. You know blah blah blah. <laughs> What did you guys think about that? And what do you think of it personally? Um, I was wondering if you were actually going to bring that up because some very rarely do people bring that up because we didn't hear that right away. But when we started to hear it, it's definitely irritating to hear. And I had uh, someone I know actually was asking me that question over and over. And I basically said, listen, I was there. I saw exactly what happened, how yeah. and why it happened. People may never know. And anyone with a conspiracy theory, I, I basically tell them, I'm not the person you need to talk to. You need to talk to someone else. I don't I don't talk about it that way. I'll just tell you what I saw. Was that the general consensus, like among your fellow workers, your fellow cops? Some cops were angry about it when they started hearing it because they were like, how dare. Yeah. And you got to wonder if uh, some of these conspiracy people even believe what they're saying or they're just looking for an outlet. Yeah, that could be, too, because, you know. I- I was a huge fan of Rescue Me. I used to watch that all the time when it was on TV. And one of the characters was, you know, they're all firefighters. They're off FDNY. And one of them was a huge conspiracy guy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, then another like group of firefighters came over to come kick his ass because, you know, there was a lot of anger there. And I'm laughing. And, you know, it's, it's TV, you know, it's yeah. make believe. But then I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't doubt it. You know, it's like if, if there was one wackadoodle that, was knee deep in conspiracy the rest of his guys might put him in check yes uh i i believe so but we didn't hear any conspiracy from any type of city worker or anybody that was involved it was always some person who just like i said earlier they just looking to talk and if that's their theory then that's their theory i think they get very little traction and sometimes the people that listen to those conspiracy theory people they're the type that have you know they're going to tell you the world's flat and they're going to tell you that the alien (laughs) yeah so you know, the tinfoil hat crowd gets into that, too. So Absolutely. I, I did get pressed on a question once, and I just looked at the guy, and I go, okay, on 9-11, when the buildings fell, where were you? And he told me where he was, and I told him where I was. I said, so let's end the conversation right there. He wasn't even in the state, and he's coming up with a conspiracy. <laughs> okay. So I, honestly, me personally, I laughed those people off. Yeah, that's probably a lot healthier to, to laugh at people like that. Yeah. <laughs> Much healthier. So looking back, besides the very obvious, what lessons do you think were learned through that entire thing for the department or maybe even the country in general? Well, the department pulled through, the city pulled through. It was not it was not a pandemonium. It was controlled chaos, like you said earlier. It was not yeah. there wasn't people running and screaming and you know. I'm sure somewhere someone broke a window and stole a radio. Let's face it, it's New York. But I didn't see that. And I saw a woman running with high heels, an elderly woman. I saw her high heel break, and I saw her fall directly on her face. And I saw people run to her to pick her up. And this is New York where, you know, we're used to just running around people because that's how we do things here. So, you know, there was a lot of help from strangers that day that 
that's not normal in New York. So I think when the things really get bad, you see the good people really go above and beyond. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, I'm I'm a history buff and I was watching a thing with a about the Nazis bombing London, you know, during World War II. And, you know, the air raid sirens would go off and everybody would run into the tubes, into the subway. And they're down there for God knows how long. And when they come back up, they don't know if they have a house or not. Oh, yeah. You know, if it's just going to be rubble. And crime went down to almost zero during that time. You know, it just, it went down to almost nothing. And, you know, it's just amazing how when it has to, it has to be a, you know, the Nazis bombing you or terrorists taking out the Twin Towers before people start being, like, nice to each other. Yeah, they were very nice to us. I mean, I would go on the subway in full uniform and, you know, we were watching who was on the subway at that time. And people would just, the nods and the hellos and the thank you. And then people were trying to give me their seat, which does, it's not, you know, listen, someone trying to give you their seat in New York City, unless you're elderly, you bet you have a better chance of someone giving you money. So, right. And, you know, it was very like the kindness was all there and it, it was very, it was very thankful at that. And a lot of cops will tell you that it was a different time and it was a, there was a lot of outpouring of support. Right. Let's put it that way. Outpouring of support was above and beyond. Yes. So did the city or the police department, you know, specifically give you guys resources, you know, to help you through all of this, all the first responders? Uh I would say little to none. They wow. gave they gave us paper masks and they gave us some some discussions and some training, but it seemed like a formality. Okay. Cause you know, I was just thinking because you know, when I was a newer cop and really through most of my career, you know, it's suck it up, buttercup. You know, something bad happened, that's too bad. And then towards the end, we got a police chaplain. And this guy is just a rock star. He was a cop himself. Oh, great. before he was a chaplain. So he knows where the bear shits in the woods. You know, he's he he knows and he he had been through some stuff himself. And he's not a holy roller. He's not trying to force, you know, like religion per se. When people hear chaplain, they think, oh God, he's just gonna start, you know, quoting Bible verses or whatever. And it, it wasn't that at all. If you wanted that, he would. Yeah, sure. But then we got um police psychiatrists and all that, but it took a lot to get that. Right. And it cost it literally costs a lot of police lives before they would do anything. We just had, you know, police suicide, you know, uh, you know, you know, on and on oh. and on. So they really didn't support you guys that way. Is that I, what you're saying? Intentional non-support, but um, you know, they had us working down in lower Manhattan and they could have done much more with giving us respirators or better masks or that because we could smell in the air uh, burnt plastic, Ugh. burnt plastic wires and cement. I did some construction. I know what cement smells like when you mix it. Yeah. Because it was pulverized into the air and and it was dusty for days all over the cars in the city. And it was, yeah. you know, I know that. I don't know, but there was just uh, later on, there could have been more that could have been done, but uh, that was way above what I was doing. I was only focusing on, you know, the tasks that were given to me for the day. Gotcha. This brings me to one more thing, and then we'll 
step away from 9-11. What, one of the things that really bothers me in society, and it really came out the last few years, was the definition of hero. You know, I'm driving by you know, a grocery store or whatever. And it's like, heroes work here. Heroes are here. Heroes this. And like, how can you compare that to somebody who ran into a building knowing that they probably weren't going to be able to come out just to try to save somebody or throwing themselves on a hand grenade so the rest of his buddies don't get blown to pieces? You know, they're sacrificing their lives. Imminent, you know, threat of life limb. And, you know, (laughs) I just, I don't understand that. I mean, was... I guess what I'm trying to say is, what's your view on that? You know, it's it's one of those things when, you know, that that came out later with the what you mentioned, heroes this and heroes that. You know, the fire department that day suffered more than the police department. So, you know, I wrote my 9-11 story, but there are cops and a lot of firemen who never got a chance to write a story because they got killed in that building. And just the lot of I was working down there that day or I was sent there. I mean, just as easily as I was directing traffic, we could have been told to run to the buildings and we would have went and I would have went because nobody knew it was going to fall. So the real heroes are the ones who saved others and did not come home that day. And there are, I worked at the family center later. I watched family members give DNA for their parents and their kids and their sisters. Those are heroes to me. Yeah, absolutely. It just, it really makes my blood boil where just the definition of hero has gone by the wayside. And just like I said, in the last few years, and I don't want to get into COVID, but you know, you're a hero because you showed up at work today. No, you're not. That's not a fucking hero. You know, a hero is somebody who ran into a fucking building knowing that they probably were not going to get out of that building. Not in the, not even in the same league, not even in the same universe, I think, but I'll go. I'm done with that. (laughs) So I agree with you on that. Yes. So later on, you promote to sergeant. How, how long were you on when you promoted to sergeant? I was promoted to sergeant uh, six, no, uh, about uh, two months later, three months later. So I was okay. already at one police plaza for the promotion, which I was waiting. So I got promoted and I got sent to Midtown Manhattan. And I was in Manhattan. And uh, when I got to Midtown Manhattan, I was a new sergeant. So they were like, Okay, Fariso, you're going to ground zero. So I was set to ground zero as a supervisor for the dig. I was supervising the dig at the time. And it was not uncommon that they pulled the body out that day. And they would wrap it up, whether it was a cop, civilian, or fireman. And, you know, I was getting a lot of crazy questions from tourists. There was some people trying to sell trinkets, which I thought was tacky, but that's what they did. I was getting a lot of tourist questions. And, you know, people would come and some would cry. And some would somberly stare and it was odd. And I started talking about it and I had, you know, I got people's attention. They were interested in what I'd say, but there was one point I was parking a car, uh, when I would eat my lunch break and there was a building behind me and I found out like I went back there. That building was closed off. There was body parts on that building behind me. God. Yeah. So that went on. So that dig went on for a, for a while. I was going to ask you, how long do you think that, how long was the recovery operation? I was working, I was a sergeant midtown when the last body was taken, not the last body, but the last piece of steel was taken out. Uh, I feel they will still find people there if they look hard enough, but they sure. hollowed ground at this point. So it, it they, they cleaned that place up for a few months. And that's another thing we said before, you know, 
you got these construction workers that did unbelievable amount of cleanup and it was a crime scene. So, Oh yeah. They, absolutely. If you're familiar with New York, we have Staten Island. They took the steel and they brought it to Staten Island and they did a crime scene in Staten Island. So that dig went, went for a few months and there was some construction workers that put in a lot of hours taking that stuff in and out. And it ended up to be a hole in the grounds, but they did an unbelievable amount of uh, work from that destruction that was there. Wow. So you're a sergeant after all the 9-11 stuff. Where did you go? Yeah, because I was a cop during 9-11. I was a sergeant. I was in Midtown, Midtown Manhattan. I got a precinct and I was just a patrol supervisor. And ironically, okay. you know, I was a patrol supervisor. It was great. I got promoted to sergeant. And then, you know, as a supervisor, you, you got to start dealing with everything. They tell you you have 10 things to do. And now you have 25 that day because <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like you have to be a babysitter for new cops. You know, you have to deal with crossing guards. You have to deal with all these things. So, you know, very early on as a sergeant, I said, you know, I had wanted to have been a tech detective since early. As soon as I became a cop, I wanted to be a detective. So I was like, how am I going to go the detective route when I'm already a sergeant? So I'm in okay. Manhattan and, you know, I, I was a patrol cop, so I still acted like the patrol cop. I'm not saying I got thrown people on cars every five minutes, but when something went on, I was out there and the cops did the work, but I was the supervisor, but there, there was one or two times. Sure. I just shook my head and said, did I want this position? I mean, you know, I the second day I was a supervisor, there's not the first, the second, you know, we get a call that there's a guy bleeding in the street, people chasing him. So I'm like, all right, something happens. And. I see a cop off duty holding a guy down and the, the guy's got a huge cut in his head. There's blood on the sidewalk. So I'm like, what's going on? So I go, I go to the cop, where's your partner? He goes, he's not here. I go, why not? He goes, well, I'm off duty. So I'm like, oh, oh great. This is what we call a bandit. <laughs> so all the cops, they put their hands behind their back and they took two steps back. They're like, I don't want to touch this, not touch it physically, touch it as in, this is a mess. Right. Exactly. So I go to him, well, what happened? And he's like, this guy did a robbery. So it turns out it wasn't a robbery. It was just he saw a store security chasing somebody. He thought they were his narcotics guys, gets out of his own car, knocks the guy out. So now I have a beaten prisoner, an off-duty cop, security guards, and I'm the second day's supervisor. So the sirens are coming. So I really didn't know what I had. And I was a new sergeant. Man. I was a cop for a while, but I didn't know what I was doing. And then it turns out the guy had an arrest warrant that was running from the security. So at the very least, we, we had something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I was going to say, is he a shoplifter? I mean, so, okay. you know, I'm looking at the cop like I can't scold you in front of people. I'm looking at him like, OK, you right. meant well, but you really created an incident here. So my supervisors all came out and they're like, Sergeant, what do you got? And I'm like, well, and I'm like, Sergeant, what do you got? And I'm in my mind saying, John, you should have just stayed a foot post in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I still thought that being a street sergeant was the best job on the department. You had nights like this, but then you had other times you're like, man, I'm the king of the world. I get to do all the fun police yeah. stuff and I don't have to write a report about it. That's the best part. Yes, not writing report was great, but um, the NYPD is very uh, reports orientated. And, you know, I, I thought that too. I'm never going to write a report. Well, I knew I was never going to put handcuffs on somebody as in making the arrest myself. I'd still put handcuffs on people. I didn't have to write a summons, which was great because that's another thing I, I wasn't a fan of. But, you know, we used to get these guys, we called them note passers, which meant that they would just walk into the bank and write down, give me X amount of dollars or I will shoot you. 
the bank. Sure. It's, it's a bank the robbery. The bank yeah. 99% of the time will just hand them exactly 2500 Yep. So it was so routine where I actually used to save the report from the last one because I would just cut and paste the information. <laughs> and and it's so bad. It's like, you know, who's doing this was the guys living in the shelters. You know, the shelters, these sure. shelters get the 60-year-old guy sent there, and you find out he did 30 years in prison for bank robbery, and now he's passing notes. So it, it was sure. such a revolving cycle. So I'm like, I'm still writing reports again. And even though they were different, but it never ends. So I guess that the formal, uh, the police work uh, bureaucracy never ends. <laughs> no, it does not. So you want to kind of get into detective work. So w- where did this take you then? Well, <laughs> so what happened was I wanted to be an investigator. So I'm like, all right, this is great. You know, I have all this experience. I want to be an investigator. And I put in for some investigative units and they weren't getting back to me. <laughs> so. And their okay. answer was, what's your investigative experience, Sergeant Furiso? <laughs> well, I handle radio runs. <laughs> no, what's your investigative experience? Man, I don't have it. Okay, I had investigative experience, but not to that level of what they expected. So I really said to myself, I got it. I got it. I want to be a detective, but I was a sergeant. So it's not like other departments. You Sergeant is above the detective. There's no detective sergeant. You, oh, there isn't. You, okay. You can be a sergeant in the detective bureau which is, okay. it's different than I know what you've talked about on your podcast. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So you could be a sergeant detective bureau, but I was never a sergeant, and I didn't have a hook where I could call somebody and he could say, I don't care, he was never a detective, he's working here. I didn't have that phone call. Okay. So we had a thing called career path, which it was, was these are units that are not the most desirable units, and the, the really good units aren't part of career path. So I, you know, the threaded three level three letter word is in that career, <laughs> which is an I, a A, and a B. <laughs> so when I tell you, there are cops and sergeants who never put in for the career path because they were terrified of IEB. Now, you're there's a good chance you're going there, but the only good thing is IEB will give you. You say you have to give them two years, and they'll let you go pretty much where you want. It's not exactly the way you want, but you get the bureau you want. So, you know, I, I filled out the paperwork and I didn't obviously ask for it, but I put in for every other unit, but IEB. And, you know, my Lieutenant comes up to me, he goes, Frieso, are you nuts? He goes, you're going to IEB like now I go, no, he goes, when you put this paperwork in, you're going to IEB. <laughs> so I was like, listen, if I don't do something now, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta move. I gotta get off patrol. So I came home and I told my wife, I go, listen, I put in I put in for this career path and I explained it as I explained to you. And I said, listen, things are going to change. I said, there's a good chance IEB is the only one that's going to want me. And I'm going to have no choice at that point. And then I told her, I said, this is going to come back to me indirectly. I'm going to start hearing about this through the rumor mill. So she's not a cop. She don't know what I'm talking about. So, right, right. Yeah, you see, you're already laughing. You know where this is going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I go to work and uh, I go. I go to work and some guy walks past me in the hallway and goes, John, are you going to internal affairs? So I said, no. He goes, you put, you put in for the career path. I go, yeah, I put in for career path. They're going to interview me. So he walks by and another guy comes up to me and he goes, Sarge, he goes, if you go to IEB, call me up. Let me know what it's like there. I'm thinking of leaving. I said, where is this room? Where is this coming from? So <laughs> You're the last to know. <laughs> sure, enough, I, sure enough, I go home that night. And, uh, 
I get a phone call from a friend of mine who's a teacher, not a cop, a teacher. Yeah. He tells me he talked to his friend in Arizona who told him I was in internal affairs. <laughs> so I said, wait a second. Wait. And I did a little detective work. I figured it out. This guy in Arizona had a friend who worked in my precinct. Oh, okay. So I go into the precinct. I see that guy. I said, have you spoken to so-and-so lately? And he looked at me and he knew exactly what I was talking about. Sure. I was like, whatever. So sure enough, I was transferred uh, pretty soon. Uh, well, no, I went on an interview first and I went on an interview and, and, uh, you know, no, no, none of the other units were interested in me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it okay. was just a formality. So you go so to, I I, up- you go to IED. Now, I don't know what it's like in New York, but where I worked, IED is split in, into two very separate parts. One is the criminal investigations and the other is like rules and procedures, you know, SOP violations like that. Is it the same thing in New York? No, they don't have a rules and procedures one. That's uh, done on a precinct level, pretty much. Uh, okay. They have, um, now, IEB, people are going to be shocked at this. IEB is huge in the NYP. There's 500 people there. Wow. That is huge. Yeah. And they have groups. And the groups are numbered. So when you get there, you don't get to choose. So they sent me what's called the command center. What it is, it's this, this is actually very funny. It's the switchboard, which means that you get everybody from, you know, some cop who doesn't like somebody in the precinct to somebody who was arrested to, to some district attorney, and they'll call the switchboard. So we would have to handle every complaint. I mean, everybody from the tinfoil hat guy that, you know, yeah. he can't pay his rent because the cops don't like him to somebody who really, wow, this they're telling something that's going on here. Right. And the first day I was there, I'm like, wow, there's, there's a lot coming through this office. And, you know, you could funnel out majority of it. You, you get guys in prison that, you know, they're looking for anything to get out of prison. You know, their cop that arrests them look like somebody that once did something to somebody else. I mean, they're, they're trying, grabbing for straws. So I went to this command center and ironically, what's funny is people call 911 to report corruption. So <laughs> they used to field the calls to the same office. So I used to have to field 911 calls too, which meant that <laughs> I used to actually get 911 calls from guys in closets who the cops were kicking in the closet door. <laughs> and okay. you would the phone and the guy would be like, there's a bunch of people. I don't know if they're cops. I don't know who they are. They got guns. And, and you could tell the cops the way they were talking. And I'm on the call with this. And then the call would go dead. Obviously, the guy gets arrested. And then I'd have to. It would be a brief investigation, which would mean that, okay, well, the cops, they served the search warrant there. Okay, there's no Alec. There's no, because that could be a impersonation, which it wasn't, but. Right. So that was the command center. And I didn't do the heavy cases yet. So the command center was kind of where you began. So what happened was when there was an allegation against an officer, if it was merited enough where it needs to be looked at further, uh, we would send it out to a group and the group would immediately go out. Like example would be, uh, um, a shield was found on a guy dealing uh, heroin, an NYPD shield. Okay. So they would try if the cop, if the cop with the shield is working, and if he was, it was great because cops wearing a shield. What's this guy got? Then you'd find out that the guy in the street is is uh, has a forged seal shield or something. Okay. That would be the good. We'd send somebody out right away. Gotcha. Now, like I said before, there's there's two separate types of investigations that IED is going to handle. One is like what you're talking about. You know, somebody's pitching a bitch or making a complaint against an officer. 
a lot of times like where i worked the district station would take the complaint and then the sergeant would get the complaint and they do an initial investigation and then they go to their lieutenant and say hey this is what i got and then the lieutenant's gonna be like well okay i'll call ied and see if they're interested in this or not the very interesting thing was the stuff that happened at one o'clock two o'clock in the morning oh yes outside bar what happened outside the bar what happened outside the um the questionable establishment (laughs) yes exactly we got those as cops an example is i'm just making this up you know if you get a guy he's outside a uh an after hours bar and you know the cops beat up and there's a there's a woman beat up you would take him to the precinct you would just call internal affairs and say listen you guys got to figure this out this is your wheelhouse not ours and um that's if there's an allegation and that would be a good example of went went to the command center and i would get the call and send it to the local ieb guys that that's usually past the precinct level because of um issues with the internal affairs should handle that and the precinct guys should handle precinct stuff so the we would send someone to the precinct so i later went to another unit where i used to do excessive force cases whenever a prisoner said excessive force or is a serious injury so i would respond to the precinct quite often mm. it was always interesting walking into the precinct with the yeah. uh the icy stairs but i was just was... gonna say they didn't welcome you with open arms <laughs> no definitely not thank you for joining myself and my special guest retired sergeant john Fericio of the nypd for part one of this special episode Tune in next week for the conclusion of this powerful discussion. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, could you take a minute and rate and review the show on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. As always, thank you for all of your support, and, of course, let's be careful out there. <laughs>